All right, you guys can turn to James chapter 5. If you've ever wondered uh, why Julie and I moved to College Station and ministered to college students, Logan and his friends are the reason why. There's nothing in this world as fun as ministering to Aggies, so really glad to have you guys here. Seriously. All right, James chapter 5. As you're turning there, I wanted to point out to you guys, there is a, uh, a little insert stapled to your bulletin. We've got a staple now because our bulletin, you can't insert anything into it, but uh, we've got this handout that uh, tells you about some upcoming events for this coming spring. We know a lot of you students, you guys are about to leave uh, for Christmas break, so we wanted to put this into your hands today before you head out so you can kind of reserve the dates. You can actually sign up today for anything on this form. So if you want to be real proactive, be good ag, sign up early. Uh, We've got three events on one side, our Grace 360 conference, all new, really excited about that. Men's retreat and then women's retreat. We'll have more information coming up, but again, you can go ahead and reserve those dates and sign up for your spot. And then on the other side, we list out a whole bunch of different Bible study opportunities. We would love to have all of you in a small group Bible study this coming spring. That's really where you're going to grow and deepen in your walk with God. So look over these options. If there's one that's really compelling to you, go ahead and sign up. Up. There's a lot more details on our website if you go there and click on connect. Okay, so we'll be looking at James chapter 5 this morning. I don't know if you were paying attention to the news this week, but there was a very big Powerball lottery this week. Did you see that? $550 million payout. Most money in, in that lottery's history. So much money, in fact, that ticket sales were brisk. I mean, incredible ticket sales. Convenience stores were selling thousands of tickets a day on Tuesday as it was gearing up. Now, uh, that's despite the fact that if you look at the odds, not a lot of chance you're going to win the lottery. Not a lot of chance. If you buy one ticket, I don't know if you know this, but if you buy one ticket, it's a one in 176 million chance that you will win off that one ticket. Now, that's just a big number. Hard to wrap your mind around that. So let me give it some perspective. Um, Here are some things that are more likely to happen to you during your life than that one lottery ticket winning. First, you're 250,000 times more likely to get struck and killed by a car crossing the street. You are 25,000 times more likely to die in an airplane accident You are 1,300 times more likely to get struck by lightning. You are 18 times more likely to become the president of the United States. And here's the kicker, you are three times more likely to die from a falling coconut than to win the lottery by buying that one ticket. And so that that leads to the question, why? Why are people who don't have the money to spend, who, who need to spend that money on other things, why are they spending money hand over fist on Powerball lottery tickets? A very easy answer. Because the lottery offers to them an escape from the pain and suffering of life. Buying that ticket gives them hope, if only for a day, that maybe tomorrow will be better than today. And I can't blame them for that hope. I can't blame them for that because the reality is life is hard. Life is full of pain and suffering to quote the ever insightful movie Princess Bride. Life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Life is painful. 
This life is full of struggle and suffering. And that's what James reminded his audience about in the previous passage. We studied it earlier this semester, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, James rebuked the immoral rich. And if you recall, we studied this earlier this semester. In the ancient world, if you were rich, it was like a 99.9% chance that you got rich through immoral means. That was really the only way to get rich in the ancient world. If you want a bigger piece of the pie, you got to take from someone else. So people got rich through theft and extortion and bribery and corruption. And James rebukes them for that. We'll just look at a a few of those verses for sake of remembering it. Look with me at verses 4 through 6 of chapter 5. He says, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, he's speaking to the rich, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. James' audience is the righteous man who've been persecuted and abused by the immoral rich. Their lives were incredibly hard, a constant struggle because of rich and powerful immoral people around them. Now, we may not suffer personally at the hands of rich and powerful people, but we all suffer. Throughout this life, we struggle. This is a, is a life of pain. This is a hard life. It's a hard life for two reasons. First, it's hard for all of us because we live in a fallen world that's full of sin. A fallen world that is full of sin, selfishness, pride, immorality. These are normative on this planet. It is abnormal to be righteous, to to walk with God. So if you want to walk with God, you are going to face hostility in this fallen world. You're going to be abused. You're going to be ridiculed. You're going to miss out on opportunities that you would have if you were not walking with the Lord. And at a minimum, you are going to struggle against temptation every day of your life because this world is constantly enticing you with sin. So life for all of us is hard because we live in a fallen world full of sin. It's also hard because we live in a broken world full of pain. This world was designed perfectly. It was designed to yield nothing but joy and peace and satisfaction to you. But you know the story. Adam chose sin. And when he did, the world broke. And so now the world is full of drought and famine, hurricanes and disease, and worst of all, death. Our bodies are broken. Our minds are broken. Our emotions are broken. Our relationships are broken. And as a result, we experience pain throughout life. Physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain. Because life is hard. For all of us. That's inescapable. Unless you are delusional, it is obvious that this life is hard for every person on the planet. It's hard, it's full of suffering and struggle because that is our lot as human beings in this life to face struggling and suffering. Because life is hard, and that begs a question life is hard, so how do you respond to that reality? That's the question behind our passage this morning, verses 7 through 11. How do you respond to the depressing reality that life is incredibly hard and full of pain? There are actually, James will tell us, two ways to respond. There is our way, the sinful way to respond to the pain of life, and there is God's way, the right way to respond to the pain of life. We're going to begin with our way. 
What is our way to respond to the pain and struggle of life? Well, our way is the natural way. And what I mean by natural is is our way is what we do naturally. When you are in pain, when you suffer, when you struggle, if you do what comes naturally to you, this is what you'll do. You'll you'll do our way, the natural way. And, And not surprisingly, because we are sinners by nature, when we respond naturally to pain, it's sinful. This is not just the natural way, it is the sinful way. When you do what comes naturally to you, it is sinful. Now, I've noticed in the course of my life, watching human behavior, learning about human behavior from the Bible, that there are actually four distinct varieties of this natural, sinful human response to pain and suffering. Four varieties of how we respond, and you will choose one or two of those options based on your natural personality and your experiences in life. But all four of them are sin, and James will mention all four of them in his book. So here they are. The first way that we naturally respond to suffering is to fight. We fight back. We hurt those who hurt us. You see that towards the beginning of the book. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. If you read between the lines of the book of James, it appears that some of the people in James' audience were tempted to respond with violence to the immoral rich who were persecuting them. They were tempted to fight back, to push back through violent means. That's the first way that we can respond to pain. We can fight back against it, either through violence or through cruel words or deceptive practices. We do whatever it takes to get even, to get our revenge. It's the first way we respond to pain. We fight back. Second way is the opposite. We respond in flight. We run away. When pain comes, we run the other direction. We try to escape from the pain of life by surrounding ourselves with the pleasures of this world, the pleasures and possessions that this world offers. You see that one actually a number of times in the book of James. We saw it in James 2. Some of the people in James' audience, rather than trying to kill the rich, they were actually practicing favoritism towards the rich. They were showing favoritism to the very people that were oppressing them. Why is that? Well, if I buddy up to this rich guy, maybe his wealth will spread a little bit to me and I will get to enjoy the pleasures of life and escape from my pain and suffering. You see the same thing in chapter four. If you look at chapter four, verse three, chapter four, verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. A number of people in James' audience were pursuing pleasure. That was their way to respond to the pain and suffering of life. I'm going to dedicate myself to pleasure. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with pleasure. What is wrong here is that they turned pleasure into their God. They lived for pleasure. They, they dedicated themselves to the pursuit of comfort and luxury and entertainment, pleasure at any and all cost. Uh, my fear is that here in America, this is the most likely one we are tempted to pursue. Most Americans, when life gets hard, what do they do? 
They drown themselves in the pursuit of possessions and pleasures. Can I just go to another nice meal, get new clothes, a a nicer car, a new iPad, go to an exciting movie, get a, a new video game? They're constantly looking for something new, some new pleasure, some new entertainment, some new possession to drown out the pain of life. They're lonely and depressed and broken and their hearts ache and yet they drown it with the pursuit of pleasure. That's the second way that human beings naturally respond to pain. The third way we naturally try to respond to pain and suffering is we complain. See this in in our passage, chapter five, verse nine. Chapter five, verse nine, just the very beginning of it. James says, do not complain, brethren. He uses a Greek word there, stenazo. And everywhere else in the New Testament, stenazo just refers to that involuntary groan or sigh that comes out of you when life is really hard. It's involuntary. You didn't mean to do it. But here, the word goes further. Uh, Here, the word means to express discontent, to to complain. The, The idea of complaining is that you choose to be discontent with your place in life and you share that discontent with everyone around you. The way of complaining is a way of self-pity. You see yourself as the victim and you want everyone else to see you that way too. It's a way of of complaining. It's related to the fourth type of of way that we respond to pain and suffering. We blame. If you look back at at verse 9 again, chapter 5, verse 9, it goes on. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. Against one another. This is not just complaining in a general sense. This is complaining against the people around us. This is lashing out at the people around us. What James is picturing is when life is hard, when life is beating down on you, this fourth way of response is you just lash out at the people closest to you. Your spouse, your kids, coworkers, neighbors, friends. You lash out at those closest to you. You blame them for the pain that you are in. Um, it's, it's remarkable to me in my marriage to Julie. We now have twins, three-year-old twins. And Luke and Gracie can be fussy. They, they can be really fussy. They can be disobedient. They can cause us a lot of stress and a lot of pain. What I'm amazed at, though, is that when we finally get the kids down, how often I will lash out at Julie. The kids are down, it's done, but I am so stressed out, I'm so worn out, I'm so frustrated at my kids that I'm short-tempered with my wife. Why? Julie didn't do anything wrong to me. Julie didn't have an accident in her pants. Julie didn't throw dinner all over the floor. Why am I mad at her? Because that's human nature. When we're in pain, when we're suffering, we lash out at those closest to us. That's the fourth natural type of response. We blame those around us. Why are you not helping me more? Why are you not carrying this load? Why are you not sharing with me? Whatever it is, we blame those around us. Okay, so there's four varieties of way that we by nature sinfully respond to pain and suffering. And before we move on to the right way, to God's way, I just want you to reflect on that list for a moment. I've found that in my life, um, one of the keys to my spiritual growth is understanding my particular weaknesses. Really, really helpful. If you want to grow as a follower of Christ, you need to understand what particular sinful tendencies you are prone towards. There's a couple of those that are it for me. Two of those that really, if, if I'm at my worst, I'm going to tend towards those things. So look at that list for a moment. Which of those four varieties of ways that we can sinfully respond to pain, which of those four are you most tended to walk down, to embrace, to practice? 
And then ask yourself, uh, whichever one of those you are most prone to practice, what are the triggers that set you off? What are the situations that, that lead you to walk down that sinful path? For me, it's my twins. What is it for you that takes you down that path? It's good to know that, to understand your weaknesses, your, your tendencies towards sin so that you can be on your guard, so that you can be watching. I know which of these I really struggle with, so I am always watching out for them so that, that I can see the first step I take in that direction and stop and turn to the Lord in prayer. So you need to understand your weaknesses. Know which of these you most struggle with. And when you see yourself taking the first step in that direction, turn to the Lord in prayer. Ask him for his help to turn back from this sinful way of responding to pain and suffering. Okay, so uh, now let's move on to happier stuff. This is the wrong way, the sinful way that we naturally respond. Let's talk about the right way now. God's way. How would God have us respond to the pain and suffering of life? That's what we learn about in our passage this morning. What we're going to find is that while there are many sinful ways to respond, there's only one right way, one right way that God has for us. Look with me. Let's read our passage, verses 7 through 11 of chapter 5. James says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Passage begins with therefore. James is saying uh, the reality of life, verses four through six, life is really hard, so here is how you respond. God's way, the one right way to respond to pain and suffering is patient endurance. That's the one right way. When you suffer, God is calling you to patiently endure it. Now let's look at those two words, patience and endurance. You see both of that, those words in this passage. Patience, makrothumeo in Greek, it appears three times in verses seven and eight as a verb, and then the noun appears in verse 10. And the basic idea of, of biblical patience is, is prolonged restraint of anger. In other words, you're really slow to freak out. You're really slow to get angry. You're really slow to lose your cool. When you put it all together, the the idea of biblical patience, if you really wanted to try to define it, it would be this. Patience means to bear up under suffering without complaint. It's definition of patience, to bear up under suffering without complaint. It's interesting, if you look at this Greek word that's common in the Bible, you will find it almost nowhere else in Greek literature outside the Bible. Because this was not a value in the Greco-Roman world. They did not want patience. They did not value patience. It wasn't something that they cared anything about. But for the Bible, patience is right at the center of the Christian life. God is called patient. We are called to follow God's example, to imitate his patience. It's the idea of of patience. It's similar to the second word that Paul uses there. It's used twice in verse 11, endurance. To endure, the biblical idea behind that word is to maintain a belief or course of action in the face of opposition or suffering. Endurance means you stand strong. 
Endurance means that you are tough. When difficulties come, you are not knocked over. You stand strong. You hold to your belief, to your godly practice in the face of suffering and pain. Okay, so God has called us to patient endurance. That's the one and only right response to pain in this life is to patiently endure it. Now that is easy to say, but so hard to practice. Patience is like this easy word that we say all the time that is so hard to actually live out. Let me ask you, how do you feel when you are really impatient and someone says to you, hey, just be patient? If you're like me, you feel less patient. Now, I actually feel angry at you in addition to whatever else I was angry about because I'm trying here. I'm trying to be patient. It's not like I chose to be impatient. You never need to choose that one. Impatience is your default choice. It's interesting, teaching Luke and Gracie just a few months ago started trying to teach them this idea of patience, of waiting. Guess what? Completely foreign to them. I can, I've used every synonym I can think of and they just stare at me with a blank face. They have no concept of what it means to be patient. To, to wait without complaining? Daddy, would you, you might, might as well be speaking Russian. That doesn't make any sense to them because patience is completely unnatural. We are not born with any of it in us. Impatience is our natural bent. That is why Paul actually tells us in Galatians 5, what is patience? It is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. It's fruit of the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, well, it can only be produced by the Spirit. That's what a fruit of the Spirit is. It's something you can't do. You cannot manufacture patience. Patience is utterly impossible for you as a fallen human being. The only person who can make you patient is God. God himself at work in you, his Holy Spirit in you, he is the only one who can grow you to be patient. Patience is impossible for us. That's important to understand. Someone tells you to be patient, just tell them, hey, I don't have that kind of power. I can't do that. That's not me. Only God can grow you to be patient. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Only this Holy Spirit can make you patient. However, we do have a part to play. Like all of the fruit of the Spirit, even though it's God who produces them, we have a part to play. There are requirements that we need to meet for the Holy Spirit to build patience within us. And in particular, for patience, there are three building blocks that are required, three things that we have to focus on if we want the Spirit to grow us in patience. That's what I want to focus on now, the the three biblical building blocks of patience. If you focus on these three things the spirit will grow your patience. You can't focus on patience because you don't have power over that, but you can focus on these three. First building block of biblical patience is steadfast hope. Steadfast hope, you saw that in verses seven and eight. Look with me again, let's read seven and eight. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Now James is assuming that you know a lot about farming in ancient Israel. So let me, let me fill you in a little bit. In ancient Israel, they did not have irrigation. There were no sprinklers, nothing like that. So for their crops to grow, they were absolutely dependent on the rain. And in particular, they were dependent on two rains. The early rain that came in October or November, it softened the ground so that the farmer could plant his seed. And the late rain, it came in April or May, that caused the the crops to mature. 
Without those two rains, there would be little or no harvest and the farmer would starve, his family would die. And and that rain, not only did it have to come, but it had to come at exactly the right time and in the right amount. It couldn't be too soon or too late, too much or too little, or the crop would be lost. And what we need to see here, the key idea, is that the farmer has no control over the rain, does he? He can't make it come. He is in a position of complete dependence before God. That's what agriculture forced the Israelites into. You had to be completely dependent on God to provide the rain at the right time. So the farmer, all he could do is wait in hope. Wait in confident expectation for God to show up and provide. That's what it means by steadfast hope. To confidently wait, expectantly wait for God to show up and make things right. That's what we're to live with is, is the expectant hope of the ancient farmer. Waiting confidently for God to show up. And James tell us, tells us God is going to show up and make things right. When? At the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord, really significant phrase here in James and throughout the Bible. God is going to make all things right at the coming of the Lord. The the word coming there, it's Greek word parousia. Uh, Outside of the Bible, it referred to a king or a dignitary showing up to your town. And the church, the early church, picked up that word and appropriated it because it perfectly fit what we believe is the next major event of world history. Next major event of world history is our king is coming here. He is going to show up right here, and when he does, he will make all things right. Now, the challenge for us is the other word you saw in this passage, near. His coming is near. That one little word has uh, created an incredible amount of debate in the church in the last 2,000 years. Near just means that something is close, either spatially or in time. Here it means in time. The, The coming of Jesus is close in time. Now, the challenge for us is that James wrote those words 2,000 years ago, and Jesus still hasn't shown up. So how is the arrival of Jesus near in any sense of the word? Well, the key is to understand by near what James and the New Testament mean is imminent. Imminent, it means it can happen at any moment. For the last 2,000 years, the return of Christ has been imminent. It could happen at any second. There is no other event that has to happen in the church or in the world before Jesus comes back. What that means is that your king could come back for you uh, in the next 2,000 years or in the next two minutes. You may not make it home today because the return of Christ is imminent. It can happen at any second. And when he comes, when Jesus returns in an event that we call the rapture, he is gonna call you home. You are gonna meet him in the air. You are gonna be transformed. You are gonna be glorified. All traces of sin will be removed from your body. You will be perfected to never experience pain or suffering again. You will never die. Life will be free of suffering. It will be perfect. That is what we look forward to. That is our hope, the return of our king to make all things right, to raise us to perfection. Now that's really important to just stop for a moment and reflect on what we just said. Our hope is in the return of the king. It is incredibly important that we understand that as followers of Jesus Christ, our hope in this life is not in a change of our earthly circumstances. Our hope in this life is in the return of our king. So many people, Christians included, put their hopes, they 
pin their hopes on a change of earthly circumstances. When my circumstances change, when I get to that next stage of life, then life will finally be better. And so we pin our hopes on on graduation or getting a date or getting married or having kids or retiring or whatever it might be. We are hoping in a change of circumstances to make life better. And what we need to understand What we need to just face up to today, the sad news that we need to own and believe is that there is absolutely no change of circumstances that will make your life truly better. Period. Nothing that can happen to you that will make your life actually truly better. You want proof? Let me share some proof with you. Uh, Let's say that you are one of the lucky couple people who actually win the lottery. You win the lottery. You have more money than you can shake a stick at. Surely that would make you happier, right? That would make your life better, right? Well, according to ABC News, I'll just quote it, a handful of psychology studies over the years have evaluated the happiness of lottery winners over time and found that after the initial glee of getting one of those big giant checks has faded away, most winners actually end up no happier than they were before hitting the jackpot. There is no change in circumstances in your life that can possibly make your life truly better. Those among us who are old understand that from experience. When you're young and single, what do you pin your hopes in? Getting a date, getting engaged, getting married. You just can't wait to be married. So then you get married. And and then when do you pin your hopes on? Well, you pin your hopes on on having kids. And then the kids arrive. and, And now what do you pin your hopes on? Your kid's moving out so you can finally have some peace and quiet and have your life back. And then your kids move out and all of a sudden what you really want is to go back in time to when you were not hurting all the time. When your joints didn't ache and you had energy. (laughs) Reality of life is it doesn't matter what stage you get to. Life is not going to get better. Every stage of life is painful and then you die. That's life. If I am the first to break that truth to you, I hope that you will believe it. I hope that you will own that and realize there is nothing in this world that can give you true and lasting hope. Because every circumstance, every stage of life is full of pain and suffering because we live in a fallen and broken world. Our only hope is in the return of our King. That's the only thing you have to look forward to, that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for you, and when he comes back, he is finally going to take away pain, suffering, sickness, death, glorify you, perfect you, give you joy and satisfaction for all eternity. That is what we long for. That is what we pray for. That is what we hope for. Not a mere change in earthly circumstances, but the arrival of Jesus. That's what our hope is in. We live with steadfast hope in the return of our king. And James ended our passage with with a couple examples of those from the Old Testament who lived with steadfast hope. First, the prophets. The prophets, they lived with steadfast hope. Now, if you've ever wondered, um, prophet in the Old Testament was about the worst job description you could possibly get. Because prophet meant that you had to go speak words of conviction to people in power. You had to go tell powerful people things they didn't want to hear. And so the prophets were never popular. At times they were feared, but usually they were persecuted. You've got um, Isaiah sawn in two. You've got uh, Jeremiah thrown down a well. Uh, You've got really rough things going on for the prophets. And yet in the midst of their pain and struggle, they lived in hope. 
They clung to hope that God will show up and make things right, that God will vindicate them, that God will, in the end, deliver them. It's an example to us. In the midst of pain, persecution, and suffering, we live with hope. And then the second example that James gives us is Job. And if you've read the book of Job, you might be surprised to see his name come up as an example of patience. The guy complains through almost the entire book. He just complains over and over again throughout the entire book. And yet the key, the reason that Job is commended is because even in the midst of his complaining, he never gave up hope. He clung to hope that God would show up and answer him and deliver him. He clung to that hope throughout the entire book of Job. And I think Job is really a joyful example to us. He he is a, a relief to us because Job is proof that living with hope does not mean just putting on a happy face. Living with hope means that you cry out to God in your pain. Living with hope means that when you want to complain, you complain to God. You don't complain to others, but you take your complaint and you're weeping to God, your grief to God. But in the midst of pouring out your pain to God, you cling to hope, to hope that God will show up and make things better. Just as he did for Job. There's that interesting line at the end of verse 11. You have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, the end of, of Job's life. God did show up. And God did turn things around for Job. He made Job more blessed, richer, better off at the end of his life than before all of his trouble came. And that's exactly what God will do for us. When Jesus shows up, he will turn our circumstances around so radically that as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. When Jesus shows up, you will enjoy such blessing and glory and joy that all of the pain and suffering of this life will be nothing more than a distant memory in comparison to that. Okay, so patience. You can't make yourself patient. Only God can do that. But the first thing that you need to focus on to grow in patience is steadfast hope. Hoping, longing, believing that Jesus is coming soon to make things right. Second ingredient to biblical patience, second thing we need to focus on is Reverent fear. Reverent fear. Actually, we'll get to that verse in a moment. Reverent fear. Look again at verse 9. Verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Now, the judge in this passage is Jesus. And the judgment that this judge is getting ready to deliver is what we call the judgment seat of Christ. We've talked about that throughout this semester. Here's Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we also, having as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, that is Jesus. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord. Notice how that passage ends. The thought of the reality that Jesus is coming back and will judge Paul filled Paul with fear. Not a a bad sense of fear, terror, but a good sense of fear, appropriate anxiousness, appropriate apprehension about the fact that our almighty king is coming. In fact, he's not just coming, he's standing at the door, James says. James wants us to picture Jesus right on the other side of those doors, so close that he can hear everything we say, so close that he can see everything that we do. Our judge is right here. He is watching, and and that's good news because that means that everything bad that people do to you, Jesus sees. 
There's no harm you have ever experienced, no pain, no suffering that he does not see and will not vindicate one day. But it's also bad news because not only does Jesus see what other people do, he sees what you do. He sees how you respond to pain and suffering. He sees those times when you choose fight, flight, complain, or blame. And he'll hold us accountable for that. Our lives will be judged. And that gives me perspective. Thinking about the judgment seat of Christ, thinking about the fact that the almighty creator is coming back and he will judge me and evaluate my life, that gives me perspective. It helps me to want to be ready. I want to live a life of patient endurance so that when he comes back, he will say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. That is my above all else goal in life, to hear those words from him when the judge arrives. We should live with a healthy sense of fear. Our king is coming and he's going to judge us. So let us walk patiently when we suffer pain. Third essential element of patience, third thing that grows us in biblical patience is diligent work. You notice there in verses seven and eight, the metaphor again of the farmer. Farmer can't control the rain. All he can do is wait and hope. And yet, as you probably know from farmers that you might know, having to wait on the rain doesn't mean that the farmer just sat on his hands all day. The farmer worked. If the sun was up, he was working. He was working incredibly hard until the harvest came in. We need to understand, trust and work are not antithetical. We are called to trust God and work our tails off. Both of those are biblical. Now, what is the work that we are called to do is right there in verse eight, you to be patient, strengthen your hearts. To strengthen your hearts, it means to to cause to be inwardly firm and committed. We need to strengthen ourselves, but I think it's really significant that that the command here in, in hearts, they're both plural. I think what James is saying is this strengthening, this is something that we do together. This is something that we do as a community. We strengthen one another. We band together as a family to encourage and strengthen each other. I was thinking last night about how to illustrate this, Um, maybe overdone, but there is no easier illustration of this to point to than our football team. This semester, think about, think about our football, you're already thinking about them, I know that, so let's think accurately about them for a second, let's think biblically about them. Okay, at the beginning of the semester, everyone told them what? You have no hope. You cannot compete, you're going to get beat down, welcome to the SEC. Now, how did they respond to that? Well, they banded together. Like, like any successful sports team, they banded together and they encouraged one another and they, they told one another, don't believe the bad press. They did not let each other believe the bad news. Instead, they encouraged one another and inspired one another. As I think about what James is saying here, strengthen your hearts, I, just, I picture our team on the field with all hands in the middle, psyching each other up before the game. We can do this. We can win. That is what James has in mind that we band together all hands in the middle, encouraging one another to endure the hardships of life. James is not the only one to speak about that. Exact same context in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. To people who were suffering, who were persecuted, who were struggling, the author of Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What we need to understand is that the Christian life is not a lone ranger kind of life. There there is no lone ranger Christianity. There's no such thing of that. If you try to do Christianity on your own, there is one guaranteed outcome. You will fail. 
Because Christianity was not designed to be done alone. It's not a single solitary sport. It's a team sport. You have to do it with others. We have to band together, encouraging one another. That means speaking words that are both truthful and gracious to each other. We need to serve one another. We need to share with one another and sacrifice for one another. Building one another up. Again, I think the the author of the picture of Hebrews, what he's telling us is that Sunday for us is our pep rally day. This is when we gather together and remind each other, hey, in God's strength, we can do this. In the strength of the spirit alive and at work in us, we can endure. We can win this battle of life. We can stand strong. We can be patient and endure. We need to band together and remind each other of that. So if you want to be patient, you can't make yourself patient. Only God can grow your patience, but it requires three things of you. Three things to focus on. I think you can think of it as a stool. If, if patience is a stool that God wants you to sit on, you can't make yourself patient, but you can focus on the three legs of that stool. You can grow yourself in steadfast hope. Pinning your hopes on the return of Christ. Not just a change in earthly circumstances, but the arrival of the king. Second, you can grow in reverent fear. Learning to fear, to revere the fact that the judge is coming quickly. And third, you can practice diligent work. Gathering together with other believers to love one another and encourage one another, inspire one another, and hold one another accountable. That is our task, our work on this planet. If you will focus on those three things, God, through his spirit, will grow your patience so you can endure. And we've covered a lot of ground this morning, so let me end with just a few practical steps, a few takeaways that I want you to focus on today and this week to help you grow in patience. Uh, The first step is, should be obvious, you need to believe the gospel to receive the spirit who makes patience possible. Patience is only possible for believers. By definition, if patience is a fruit of the Spirit, you cannot grow in patience until you have the Spirit living inside of you. The Spirit comes to live inside of you the moment that you believe the good news. That Jesus, God's own Son, died for your sins. He paid the penalty of all your sins on the cross and rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life and the gift of the indwelling Spirit. The first and foremost today, I just ask you, have you believed that good news that we celebrated in baptism this morning? Eternal life in the spirit through belief that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. Got to get that right first. Second, I encourage you to accept suffering as normal and unavoidable. I think in in a lot of ways, that's one of the initial steps that are required for, for us to grow. We just have to own up to the fact that suffering is going to happen. Life is going to be painful. There's no way around that. That's just reality. This world has fallen and broken. We need to know that life is going to be hard. The sooner that we own up to that reality, the sooner that we can see clearly. It's important in life to have accurate expectations. If you actually expect that your life is going to be better tomorrow, you need to own up to it. No, it's not. Not in any real measurable way. No, this life is full of pain and suffering. You need to just accept that and own up to that. That leads to the next thing. Because this life is full of pain and suffering, you need to choose to set your hope on seeing Jesus. You need to think more about Jesus returning and look forward to that more than than other things, than the entertainment and possessions and pleasures that this world offers. Your hope should not be in those but in the return of Christ. And the best way that I know to do this, to set your hope on the return of Christ, is to read about it. Read about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Let me give you a few passages. Um, I'll, I'll send this out by Twitter and Facebook later today if you don't write this down. 
Spend some time reading Isaiah 11, 60, and 65, all about the return of our king. Read Romans 8, 18 through 25, about what life will be like for us in the future. And then Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth that you get to look forward to. Spend time meditating on these passages and discovering the joy that awaits you. It's coming. You can believe it. You can be confident in it, but you need to know it. Set your hope on that by reading those passages. And then fourth, finally, look for a believer to encourage this week. Is there a follower of Christ around you, maybe in your family, a friend, a coworker, um, who's just really discouraged? Life is hard. We're here in the holidays. Statistically, more depression during the holidays than any other time of the year. Lots of people struggling right now. Who can you encourage? Who can you come around and love and listen to? Don't just give them quips. Hey, be patient. But no, come and join their life. Come and surround them, encourage them, serve them, share with them, love on them. Help them to see and place their hope in the return of Jesus Christ. That's their hope, is is that you will help them. We're meant to do this together, to walk together through the pain and suffering of life. So look for who you can encourage. Um, let's, let's end by going to the Lord and just lifting up our incredible need that he would grow us in patience so that we can endure well. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have hope. In the midst of pain and suffering, which is unavoidable in this life, we praise you that death will not be the end of our story, but that we will spend eternity with you, that our sins are forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that eternity is ours, we are your children, you love us, that we will enjoy perfect peace, joy, fulfillment for all time. Thank you, God, that Jesus is coming soon. We do pray that he would come sooner than we probably expect. I do pray, Lord, that we wouldn't even make it home today that he would come back for us and make all things right finally. We pray, Lord, that in the meantime, that we would wait in patience, that we would endure the pain and suffering of this life, not responding in our nature through fighting back or or fleeing into, into possessions or pleasures, not complaining to one another or blaming each other. I pray, Lord, that we would turn away from those sinful responses and instead we would patiently endure through the power of your spirit. Help us to be people, Lord, of, of hope, of, of reverent fear, and of diligent work encouraging one another to stand strong. I do pray, Lord, that you would grow us to be a people of patient endurance. Only you can do that. So we lay it at your feet. And pray it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.